Hello, we are live with SCI TV. Today, I am joined by Gary Furlong, who is a friend, colleague, co-author, and just an all-around great guy and expert on dispute resolution. Welcome, Gary. Oh, happy to be here. So we've had lots of fun conversations over the years, and unfortunately, most of those don't end up on video, but this one will. Sounds uh, good. You put out a great book, and this is an update to your previous book on toolbox and conflict resolution tools. So you, you want to tell us a little bit about the book and why you did it the first time and what drove uh, the conflict resolution toolbox in the update now as well. Yeah, great. Yeah, so the original book really was focused on, there's a lot of great theoretical material out there about conflict and it's been studied to death in a, in again, a very theoretical sense. And, and conflict though is really an experiential thing. I mean, we experience it. We will get into conflict with people at our work, in our personal lives, in, in various negotiations. And so the question always became, how, how do we use those learnings? How do we apply some of these interesting and, and valid uh, research pieces, put them to good use in our real lives. So the, the book really said, first and foremost, we have to be able to diagnose conflict, understand what's causing it. This conflict's very complex and sometimes we get paralyzed by seeming complexity and we don't actually, aren't able to figure out what's really at the root cause of this. So we just get into a very reactive mode. So the idea behind the book was giving what I call practitioner-focused simple tools, simple models that help us very quickly understand what's going on in a given situation, and then points us in some very simple actions we could take that would make it better, that kind of would lead us out of the woods. So that was the idea behind it. And, and when I wrote it originally in, uh, in 2005, um, the, the models were very robust and they've been used for a number of years and a lot of, by a lot of different people and really validated as effective and useful. Um, but there's been a whole resurgence of brain research, I shouldn't say resurgence, but a lot of it going on in the last 20 years that also pointed to some deeper processes that these brains of ours go through. Um, so in the second edition, which came out this year, I, I added two new chapters that are really focused on some of the deeper and more unconscious biases that we need to be able to understand and, and, and apply if we want to be successful at resolving things. Yeah, one of the things I really appreciate about your book, and for those looking, this is what it looks like as well, uh, is that it is applicable in almost any context. And I, in fact, this book, you know, the first version, not the second version, is how we met. Yeah. Because I have been using this book in a setting that I'm not even sure you had entirely contemplated at the time, which is taking all of the models and applying them to really complex sport and sport business controversies and issues that have been happening. And then at some point I, I got the nerve up to reach out to you and say, hey, I don't know if you realize, but this is how I'm using it. And it's, it's really innovative and really fun yeah. to apply it in that way. Uh, so I was hoping today you might share a little bit of the updates. Uh, two particular models stood out as I was reviewing it. One was the law of reciprocity and yep. the other was loss aversion. Both seemed incredibly relevant for any context, but certainly where our audience spends a lot of their time on sport and sport biz. So maybe yeah. you could talk about the models a bit broadly and then we could put them into application a little bit as well. Sure. 
let's start with reciprocity. So this is, I call it the law of reciprocity. It's, it's often called that or the rule of reciprocity. It's a fundamental way that human beings interact with each other. There is no society on the planet Earth that doesn't follow the law of reciprocity. And essentially what it says is it's kind of like modifying the golden rule a little bit instead of treat others uh, as you would wish to be treated. The law of reciprocity says you will be treated by others the same way you treat them. And it's a tricky law because if I give you, uh, if I help you or support you, you kind of feel deeply unconsciously like you have to, you have to reciprocate that. How many times, especially when I was younger, a friend would call and say, can you help me move apartments on the weekend? And my first thought is, why did I answer the darn phone? But I always did because I knew at some point I'm going to call that person and they're going to kind of drop what they're doing to help me. The re reciprocity is foundational. But if you give somebody disrespect or you give them something negative, oh, by goodness, they want to repay that as well. So it greatly shapes, and you can watch in the, in the real world, if you will, things unfold where either we go on what we call an upward spiral, where I help and support you, you return the same, which helps me. So I give it back to you, you so you give it back to me. And, and we are jointly accomplishing far more than we could individually. Or I've done something that upsets or harms you, you do the same to me, I give it back to you, you give it back to me. And now we are simply expending time, energy, money and resources hitting each other and wasting all of that. And we are both achieving far less than we can. And you can see it like, uh, you know, out in the real world in, in lots of things. If you wanna take, you know, sports, for example, how many times have we seen a sports team where uh, they bring in a superstar who's a prima donna, who simply is out for whatever he or she wants for themselves. And you watch subtly the rest of the team undermine that person. They, they stop passing to them as much. They stop, and the whole team suffers. And conversely, we've seen sports teams that have no superstars, no big egos, and somehow they outperform far past expectations. And, and it's really under at least one big plank underlying that is this law of reciprocity. It, it's so interesting that you, you bring that example up because when you talk to coaches, so many of them talk about this elusive and immeasurable chemistry. Yeah. And, and in reality, if you were to unpack it, maybe what they're seeing is downward and upward spirals and, and not chemistry or some magical interaction, but in fact, this reciprocity playing out one way or the other. Oh, quite, quite often. I mean, like I said, this, as human beings, we're tuned in, we're social creatures. So these are, are deeply ingrained, virtually genetic. I mean, I'm not a geneticist, but on that deep epigenetic level of um, we are coded to help and support those that do that for us and vice versa. And, and like I said, we see it in many areas. Um, you know, we were talking earlier, you see how the NBA has built the relationship between the players union and, and, and ownership where they seem to support each other. They seem to recognize very quickly that what's good for one is good for both and vice versa. They listen to each other and, and their league has moved forward greatly. And then you look at, you know, someone like Major League Baseball, where each side in every press release, every article is about, well, here's what we demand. Here's what we want. 
and the other side is doing the same. So they're both trying to take from the other and the net result is labor stoppages. It's uh, the, the business doesn't thrive in the same way and doesn't grow in the same way. And, um, and, and it, part of it boils down to this very simple dynamic that, that I as an individual with you or any other person on a simple level, I have great influence on, right? But to your point, the upward spiral in the NBA has led to really almost a renaissance of the NBA, that their willingness to continue to support each other, even with divergent views and divergent interests, they find ways to support each other and keep that spiral going upward to the, to the point where yesterday there was a, an op-ed in the Boston Globe from the entire Boston Celtics team talking about facial recognition software and police forces, and they were lauded by the NBA for having voice. Yeah, yeah, it's a great and, example. Yeah. And, and Major League Baseball is no longer America's pastime. Well, no, and, and I mean, it was announced today or yesterday, uh, Giannis, uh, um, you know, at, at the Milwaukee Bucks re-signed with them as a way to repay Milwaukee's fans' support of him. He had a choice of going in, anywhere. He'd have made the same money anywhere, most likely, right? But he chose that specifically, as he said, because of this idea of reciprocity. Uh, amazing. And, and yet it's simple, but hard to implement. Why is it so hard for so many folks to be on the upward spiral? Why do so many seemingly end up on the downward spiral? Because our brains are designed to look for things we don't like. So my, my naturally tuned into what, what someone has done to slight me or someone has done and I, I over-focus on that and reciprocate it really quickly, which sets the tone almost immediately of an adversarial relationship. And then it just happens really quickly. And by the time it, we're really seeing what's happening, we're five tit for tats to where I don't want anything to do with you anymore. So it's really early in that process of, of recognizing it. Or in the middle of it, one party has to say, I can break the cycle. And, and we call that a confidence building measure. If you did something, put out a press release that was derogatory to me, instead of reciprocating, if I, I reached out to say, hey, I think we can resolve this. I think we can make it better. Then you'd all, even if at first you were unsure or you didn't trust that, but if I did it publicly, you'd almost feel compelled to reciprocate or you look like the bad guy, right? So there's ways we can actually consciously break the cycle to turn it back to a, a, an upward spiral, but it takes deliberate action and it takes overcoming this unconscious bias of you did me wrong, I'm gonna double that and give it back to you. And your other model that you've introduced in here, one of the more novel models as well to, to think through the loss aversion, sounds like it actually in some ways relates to this dynamic. Is, is that yeah. true? Yeah, there is, there is certainly some overlap. Loss aversion is it, on its simplest level is the measurement, and this has been well-researched, is our brains amplify what we perceive as a loss two to four times greater than the equivalent gain. So if, if something positive happens, we like that. If something on the same level of the positive, but is negative happens, that's two to four times worse to us, which is what really drives us on the reciprocity piece to strike back because it feels so lousy to us. 
And, and that's what loss aversion does. And so it, broader than, than simple reciprocity, loss aversion looks at also, how do we frame things? So for example, suppose I have, um, I, I'm, I'm signed to a, a major league sport and, and the day I sign, I am thrilled with my three-year deal and, and whatever I'm being paid. I'm happy as a clam. And then a year later, another player is signed for 10% more than me. My salary has not changed, but I am so suddenly seeing that I'm losing 10% every year instead of gaining the full amount of my salary, all my brain focuses on is what I now perceive or think I'm losing because someone else is getting more. I become disgruntled. I become, become unhappy. And the irony is that substantively nothing has changed for me. It's, my, it's this loss aversion bias that says I, I, I don't wanna lose something. It's why in a non-sporting example, anyone who has bought or owned stocks, when a stock goes down, we rarely sell it because we don't want to crystallize the loss. It's not a loss until I sell it. So I hang on to dogs. I get a good stock that goes up 10 or 15%. I sell it because I want to capture the game. So you multiply that over time. My whole portfolio is losing stocks. And it's ironic and stupid when you think about it, but it's why people you know, buy high and sell low because at some point they say, I, I can't stand it anymore. And they do sell, but it's, it, we hang on to things to avoid losses at all costs. But if, for example, I have a losing team and as the coach, I can get my team framed around everything that happens to us on a loss we learn from and we are getting better at, that team will stay motivated through the losses and actually will get better because they are focused on something constructive. If I simply motivate by fear and, and berate people for the loss, then my, everyone on that team is focused on constantly measuring how much they're losing. They're, they've got a foot out the door. I'm like, I don't, I don't wanna be around this. This is, you know, this is nothing but losing. So it, it goes on very subtle levels as to how do we help and frame things from whether either loss or gain. And how do we shift our, uh, I guess, our what we call the fulcrum or the reference point? What am I re referencing when I perceive something as a gain or a loss? And that will dictate a great deal of my own satisfaction and also um, what, what I respond, whether I respond constructively or negatively. You can imagine the implications of this, whether it's coaches and trying to figure out how to communicate and frame whether it's incentives or punishment, perhaps, what, you know, what's going to work more when you're constructing a, a, a contract for a player, how much it should be incentive laden, how much should have punitive elements if the behavior falls off kilter. Any insights into those contexts or others? Oh, I think there's a, it's absolutely a dynamic. I'll put it in again in a different context. You know, if you talk to anyone who trains dogs, for example, who are highly intelligent creatures, um, uh, they, never, they never strike the dog. They never punish that way. It's always reward-based because once a dog um, uh, perceives something as a constant loss, they get fearful and they simply are trying to protect themselves. They won't learn much other than how to, how to avoid. But if they're trained with positive reinforcement, they, they I mean, you know, dogs do amazing things in our world very happily and, and, you know, and healthily when they're trained that way. So that's on a very simple level. But 
you know, humans are, are, are much more complex than that, but follow the same basic rules. We want to achieve it, it, that intrinsic motivation is very powerful, much more powerful than extrinsic motivation, especially fear. Fear is a motivator. Let's be frank, it is. But it's short term and it's narrow compared to engaging people in gain where, um, where they're, they're, that's where they spend most of their time, kind of the sky's the limit with people. Yeah, re really fascinating. And what, one of the things I really appreciate about the tools you introduce is how much they become a performance driver, right? We, we often think about conflict in its destructive ways, but I think in this, putting the loss aversion into play, a lot of what you're proposing is actually really positive, constructive tools to be able to make the most of conflict and turn it into a productive force in all that you're doing in these collaborative moments. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good point. I mean, that friction tells us there's a problem somewhere and we have a choice. We can you know, try and uh, basically uh, defeat each other or win around that problem, or we can unpack the problem together and look to maximize the gain we get out of it. And, um, and, and, and the, the cautionary note is we are quick to go to the loss, to the negative and reciprocate that into a, a deep dark hole. If we can become aware of these things, we can intervene really early in this process, frame it and focus people on what, what can we both gain from this and end up far ahead of the game. Fantastic. Gary, I would encourage folks to have this on their desk as a reference guide. I have it firmly placed over my shoulder on my bookshelf and it never has dust on it because I'm always pulling it off and using it and applying it to the work that I do. And, and I would encourage others in, in just about any capacity to do the same. Any final thoughts as we depart? And this will not be our last conversation by any means, but for today. Uh, you know, what, I, what I've found working with many people around this is it starts with just an, an understanding and awareness when you see people behave around you in a certain way, our tendency is to say they're either bad people or I don't wanna be around them. And, and that's the reactive phase. If, if, you can, if we can simply look and say, what's causing this? And, and if it's simply negative reciprocity, I, I can let people go on that in the sense of I can say, ah, I understand that all I do is offer something constructive and they're going to kind of feel like they have to go there too. And, and it can turn around. So it starts with just that awareness that we are so much more powerful and able to create the environment we want if we understand some of these really basic principles. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Everyone should get a copy of the Conflict Resolution Toolbox, second edition. Yeah. Uh, and we will continue to uh, do the good work here. Appreciate your time. Oh, great chatting with you again, Josh.